Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Bethany. As we are now having our, I think this is our third lay theology conference. So we, we started this uh, back in 2016, I believe. Uh, we actually had Pastor Melius out here for our, our first lay theology conference on, on the same topic we'll be, we'll be hearing about today. And then had uh, Dr. Adam Francisco for me a year and a half later, and then COVID happened. And so uh, we're kind of returning back to what we started with. It was so, so well received, and, and, and uh, Pastor Melius has had a number of years to, to think about it. So I uh, build on e even the lecture that we heard before. Uh, a few things. Um, just by way of housekeeping, we had a, a few people uh, joining, joining us from other congregations throughout the area, throughout the district, so welcome. Uh, if, if you're uh, interested, the bathrooms are, are down the hallway to your right and also down toward the gym on the left. So really, no matter which hallway you go down, you'll find a bathroom there. Um, there's coffee and variety of donuts in the, uh, in the multi-purpose room, so help yourself to those. Thanks. Uh, Keith and Jacqueline Deitch and, and Beth for getting everything settled behind the, working behind the scenes here. Uh, the schedule you received when you came in, hopefully, it's at that table in the back. If you didn't grab one, you can grab one of these for the schedule. That's on the table. And also, Pastor Melius is going to have, uh, he's got two different handouts he's going over. One is stapled and one is not. So you're going to need those uh, that can maybe benefit as much as you can from the, from the presentation. You can grab those. Uh, welcome to pop out and grab uh, coffee and, and snacks as you like. We'll expect lunch around, around noontime. Uh, if you're interested in using the Wi-Fi, uh, the Wi-Fi password is Martin Luther, capital M, capital L, all one word. Uh, we are, this is a free conference, so we, we kind of budgeted this event, and so uh, we try to take up any, any free will donations that you'd like to contribute to help offset some of our costs for the conference. Feel free to utilize that as you'd like. There's an offering plate on the table in the, in the narthex. What else? Bibles. Pastor Emilius mentioned he might, he might actually be looking at the Bible, which we knew would make Chris happy, right? Uh, so, and, and there's Bibles in front of you, kind of scattered amongst the hymnals. If there's not one, just hop up, don't be shy, grab one from somebody else, and uh, pull, it, uh, pull them in here. It's just don't have enough room for hymnals and Bibles for everybody in the, in the sanctuary. Um, since we are trying to record this and live stream it, um, and have it for other people to enjoy who couldn't be here today, if you do have a question, unless you're a really good streamer, because you're going to be thinking, I don't, I don't want to have to get up and walk over, but you're kind of doing a disservice to people who might benefit from your question. So if you would, raise your hand, and we got the handy-dandy voters' assembly microphone, and so we'll have somebody run it out to you so you can ask your question that way. In fact, I'm going to, I'll set it right here. This is the official microphone pew, so you can run up and grab that, pass it around as you see fit. Uh, I think that's it. Yeah, and thanks. I don't know if Jacqueline's even in here. Jacqueline did a lot, all the work behind the scenes, getting the food and everything ready, as well as uh, Beth. So thanks for, for their work. All right. By way of our speaker, I want to introduce uh, Reverend Jared Melius. Graduated from the University of Washington in 2000, and then graduated from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana in 2005. He was called to and ordained at Mount Zion Lutheran Church in Denver in January of 2006 and has served there ever since as the sole pastor. Over the last 10 years, Pastor Melius has had a growing interest in the subject of heaven and has been asked to present a number of forums on the subject. Uh, one of the first times I even met Pastor Melius was at a pastor's conference down in Fort Collins, I think, and they had asked me to do like the closing prayer or something for the conference, so Mandy and I went down there and just listened to caught the tail end of this conference. We're like, man, I wish I'd caught the whole thing. 
So I've, I've gotten to hear it a couple times now, uh, higher things. A number of our youth, some of your children might have, have enjoyed that. And uh, we, we've heard them here as well. So uh, Pastor Emilius is married to Jan, who together, uh, with together, they're raising nine children in their Broomfield, Colorado home. Between the two of them, Pastor and Jan stay busy with homeschooling, gardening, and all kinds of outdoor activities. I personally got to know Pastor Emilius in my time in Colorado, in my previous parish. Uh, he and Jan are godparents to our, our oldest, Annabelle. So I look forward to hearing uh, Jared, a good friend of mine, and uh, getting to visit with him over the, over the next couple of days is nice. He'll actually be preaching uh, tomorrow as well in, in our services and, and doing kind of the summarized version of the 45 one-hour one hour, uh, version of this presentation in Bible study on Sunday. So if you have a spouse or somebody who couldn't make it, uh, you can try to bring in the church and Bible study on Sunday. Honored to have you here today. Look forward to your presentation. We welcome Pastor Jared Mears. So, 12 years or something. And they, Estes Park is not right next to our house, so they, they would occasionally drive down and we would have. By that, at that point, oh, you can hear me? Ah, uh, there. <laughs> you want me to do the commandments again? <laughs> uh, we had four or five kids, and they would come and visit. They were, at the time, they were married but without kids, just, just dogs. Um, and we got to know each other very close. Our wives are very close. And ever since uh, you've uh, drawn him away from us, uh, we've, we've worked to draw him back somehow to Colorado someplace. Yeah, there's a congregation that's open. You should come. And he will say, no, why would I leave there? You should come here. And we will say, we're not going to leave here. We love it here. You should come. So we make up reasons and excuses to see each other. And so the truth be told, that's probably what's going on here. It's just, just a reason for us to get together and, and talk. But I do appreciate you all coming out. I should probably refer you to the uh, handout, the stapled one. And that's what I'll be working my way through just to kind of keep myself on task. I don't want you, though, to think that I have anything too structured. I do really encourage you to ask questions. I, I'm not afraid to just, to just tell you I'm going to answer that later. Can I put you off or something like this? So don't, don't be afraid. I know the microphone has got to go around and uh, things, but I, do, I am interested in your questions almost as much as, as anything else. In my experience working my way through this material, I, f I found that it is sometimes challenging for people. It's, it's in a lot of ways, at least as I've understood it, a little bit of a challenge to what some people have heard growing up uh, about heaven, um, about our lives in heaven and what we can expect there. Um, over the years, I've found that you know, the most interesting or valuable parts of what I hope to contribute today have been these. I've got a list of about four. The first is, the first thing that we'll review, which is a basic, on the whiteboard, a basic outline or a timeline of the afterlife from a Christian perspective, um, which, is, which is somewhat complex. It's not as flat as you might imagine if, you, if, you, if you're not familiar with it. The second thing that people are interested in is the condition of people's souls right now in heaven or in paradise, which we'll review a little bit. The third thing, actually, is a consideration in the subject on hell, a 
which, which might be the second, our second session this morning, later this morning, is not the description of hell so much as the description of what the Lord went through when he was on the cross and the depths of his humiliation at that point. So I, I, I think you'll hopefully find that useful when we get to that point. And then finally, it would be the questions at the end. So if you've already skipped ahead, you can see there's a bunch of questions on the last two pages or so in your handout about what, uh, what, what, what you can expect in heaven. I don't know what all the questions are. I've forgotten what they are, but we'll work our way through them. Is there gravity? Will we eat food? Uh, will you have your pets back? Um, all those kinds of questions um, that we'll get to. So I want to get started with that timeline. Before I do, though, I just want to make, it, if, if you don't mind, I want to make a quick defense of, uh, of our time here today and considering this issue. I, I, um, when I consider heaven and think about it and grapple with it with members at my church, we, we tend to grapple, we get down into the weeds. Like, will there be buildings? Do you think there'll be roads? Uh, will we need attorneys when we get to heaven? I mean, all these sorts of just odd questions. And I have my experience over the years is that that's some, heck, those sorts of questions will make people uncomfortable. I can remember very specifically somebody, I, looked, I was looking right at him when I was delivering <laughs> when I was deliberating whether or not there would be Taco Bell in, uh, in heaven. And my position is yes. And he, he got this look over his face like, not again, or something like this. And so I pushed him a little bit and he said, I just don't know why you'd want to talk about these kind of things when we're not there yet. Like why, we can't know this. There's not, heaven is a place that's a, past our imagination. It's so far beyond our comprehension and our present existence that it's just silly to give serious consideration to all these kinds of weird details. Just, he said, why don't we just wait until we get there? Then we'll figure it out. What would be the point of doing it now? And I was stumped by that at the time. So all my talking about heaven and so forth, and I couldn't answer the question, why would it be valuable? Why would it be presently useful and applicable for a Christian to give any kind of consideration to this? In fact, it is valuable. I'd refer you now to your, your, your outline there as an introduction. Just some of the passages, basically to defend or uh, to give good cause for why you're here today, why I think this can be valuable. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 reads, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's heaven. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. There, St. Paul gives to us instruction, even commandment, if you want to talk this way, to give consideration to heaven. This is actually a task we're supposed to be doing, is thinking about our future in heaven. Hebrews 11, verse 16. And this, all of Hebrews 11 would have been valuable, so I'm cherry-picking a passage, but I think there's any number of passages which encourage the same thing. Remember Hebrews 11 is that passage. It's a great big list of all the Old Testament saints and their faith, and chiefly their faith in a thing that they didn't have yet, but that was coming to them. And in verse 16, he says, as it is, they desire a better country. This is their faith. 
Their faith is that they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Not a city that they live in at the moment, but a city in heaven. And that was the heartbeat of their faith. They were hanging on. They were waiting. Whenever they went through difficulty, they would, think, they would remember, I'm going to go to heaven. I think elsewhere in Hebrews, I believe in, in Hebrews chapter, oh, there it is, Hebrews chapter 2. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had, just a moment, so he's talking to the, the church there, and he says, I understand that you've all gone through a significant amount of suffering. You are presently going through pain. And I can recall, he says to them, that you, what does he say? You had compassion on those who were in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. <clears throat> so the Christians had their property taken away from them, but somehow or another, did you notice the wording? He says, you, ex you not merely accepted the plundering of your property, but you joyfully accepted the plundering of your but this was joyful to you in some manner it's not joyful how would it have been joyful now he gives his reason since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one what's a, a better possession and an abiding one i think you could probably argue that's the gospel i don't think in context that's what he's talking about i think it's because they're recognizing they're looking forward to and this is the basis of chapter 11 then which comes next they're looking forward to heaven, but they'll be given homes. So they have the homes taken away from them, the property plundered, they're going through suffering. What is it as they're plodding along that keeps them looking forward? What is their hope? Their hope is heaven. Well, see, I would just lay this challenge before you. How can you hope for something that you can't even begin to imagine or think about? Remember the, um, the academy, I can't remember her name, um, somebody who, who swam, was heading, going for the uh, record at the time, and this had never happened, was, and I don't even remember her name, but she was going to swim, I think, from Catalina Island off the coast of California to the coast of California. And I'd never been done before. So the boat next to her watching, make sure she doesn't go down, and she's swimming. It's excruciating. She wants to give up. The people on the boat kept saying, no, 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 you're so close. You're just about there. Just keep going, keep swimming. And she finally, she finally gave up. She didn't make it. They got her up into the boat. Later on, they were interviewing her. And, and I'm just paraphrasing because I remember it just barely. But she said, you know, in hindsight, I think I could have made it to the shore. But the waves were so tall, I just couldn't see the shore. I couldn't see it. I think if I could have laid eyes on it, that I'd have been able to keep swimming. What, she was, what she's getting, picking up on is that if you, can, if you can envision where it is that you're going, where you're heading, that helps you now to keep, to keep going, to keep grinding it out and putting one step in front of another. But how are you going to be able to do that in a Christian life if heaven is utterly unimaginable, ethereal, otherworldly, beyond our, quote, imagination, in other words, I can't imagine it. I can't think of what it would look like. Um, if it's just floating in the clouds, how am I, how's that going to help me now to get there? Uh, 
So I think this hopefully will be helpful for you now, not just to imagine something academically in the future, but that this pushes you right now to keep on going. Uh, the future is always better than the present. Okay, so without wasting any of our time, I think we're going to get to this whiteboard and draw a quick sketch on the board of what heaven, of the basic timeline of the afterlife. I suppose you're all to some extent familiar with this. By the way, am I, if I'm moving, am I, are you with me? If I, okay, I'll try not to go too far. But a quick sketch of the afterlife. I suppose some of you know this uh, to, in some amount of detail. Maybe some of you, maybe some of you, this would be the first time. But I just want to give it to you the broad perspective. And I, I'll nail down into a lot of these different areas later on. But this will be our big picture. If I had, uh, if I had a whiteboard, it would be about um, half this and about double the length. So I'm going to compress it into this small space. That map of the afterlife starts right here with the moment of our death. That's just where we're going to start the, the map. So when, when, when a person dies, what happens when they die and what would they then expect afterwards? So when a person dies, the scriptures teach that the definition of death is not any kind of physical reality like the heart stops beating or something like this, but that the definition of death from a Bible perspective is the separation of two components of us that were meant always to be together, and that's our body and our soul. God created our body in his image, but he breathed into us a soul, a life-giving soul. A death is simply the removal of that soul. And those, those two components then enter into two kind of different independent existences at that point. The body, as you're aware, continues in this world but it continues on to decay. We'll say this is the body. And we'll do different things with bodies. Uh, hopefully, typically in the Christian church, if we're able to, we're gonna bury that body in the ground, but we know why we're burying it. It's because it's gonna decay. And so we're putting it into the ground. Bodies might be lost, but whatever the case, they stay in this realm. The soul does not. In fact, the soul of a Christian person who's believed in Jesus, we're told, does not die. Uh, for just for the purpose of envisioning it, I guess, or putting it on the board, I'm going to put that the soul goes up and continues to exist separate from the body in an independent but parallel kind of an existence. I'm going to put a line here so you know what's coming, but for the time being, let me just hone in on this. This existence of the soul apart from the body the theologians have a word for, they call it the intermediate stage or the status intermedius. I'll put it up here. Intermediate state. By saying intermediate, it's not permanent. So I think that's the first thing that we want to just draw to your attention. The soul is in a place which the Bible calls different wording. Jesus called it paradise. Remember when he called it paradise? Remember where that was? On the cross. On the, yeah, when he, today, today he tells the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. He wasn't referring to his body, but the thief's body was presumably put on a pile outside the city someplace for criminals. But his soul is in paradise. And that was that very day, today you'll be with me in 
today, on this day. Not a generic day, but that particular Friday, you'll be with me in paradise. In, uh, in Luke chapter 16, uh, Jesus calls it Abraham's bosom. Uh, it's a kind of an old Hebrew way of describing it, the place where people who have Abraham's faith would go, Abraham's bosom. In, a, in my notes, I'm going to make a case that it can be called heaven. I'll get to that in a little bit. So I think it can be called heaven. What I think is important to note here is that, um, first of all, not all souls will go up into this existence. Souls do, some souls, maybe even most souls, when they're separated from body, the body, do not go into heaven, but depart their body and live in a similar parallel existence, but in place the Hebrews, or the, the Greek calls Hades, which we usually just blandly translate as, as hell. But the Greek word is Hades. <clears throat> and second, I think it's important to note that right following this death, there is, according to Hebrews chapter 9, 25 or 8 or 7 or something, somewhere in Hebrews 9, we have that passage, it's a very important passage, that it's appointed unto a man uh, once to die and then comes a judgment. So we're, we're, we refer to judgment day, correctly speaking, which I'll get to, but there is in fact a judgment that occurs at the moment of death, according to that Hebrews 9 passage. That judgment is based upon whether a person has faith in Jesus or not. Right? And after the judgment, there's not a second chance or a third chance. There's, there are second and third chances before death. There's a hundred chances. There's a thousand chances. But not after death, not at least from anything in the Bible that I can get any indication of. So Hebrews 9.27, or 5, or is it? I'll just say 27, says that there's a judgment that occurs. Why that, I think should be significant to you, is that it, 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 it's already a teaching that at the moment of death, you know where your eternity will lie. There is going to come a judgment day, and that's what this line is, when the Lord returns. That's a judgment day. In fact, I'll show you. That's a day of a judgment day. That's just based on works. Uh, that's what the multiple passages in the scriptures teach us. But it's but it's a judgment that's already occurred based on, on whether a person has faith in Jesus. So there's no wondering. If your soul's in heaven with the Lord in paradise, you don't wonder how judgment day is gonna go for you. It's not up in the air or nervous or something. And, and similarly, if you're in Hades, you, you also do not have the luxury of hoping that maybe it'll go okay for you when you get to this point. more than one button. You're right, I could. I might end up doing that. What, what about the people who uh, don't know Jesus because they've never known or had the opportunity to know Jesus? I'll let you keep it. Yeah, now you, my, I said I want I you to- I use it far too often. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, now you're just in charge of running around instead of me and giving it to people. Um, 
the uh, the the reason that I, well, we have a whole unit on hell. I don't know how much of it, how much I'll talk about this, but uh, I'll answer the question now the best I can. The the reason that we're told that people go to Hades is certainly because they've rejected Christ. That's the that's the simplest way of saying that. But the reason. The, the, the most basic and essential reason that, that, that a person would go to Hades or to hell is because they have sinned against the Lord. Is this it? <laughs> I was wondering this morning if this was going to be the day. <laughs> um, but the, the reason a person goes to Hades is because this is a penalty for their sin. So look, it's not because they're being penalized for rejecting Jesus, not on the surface of it, but because it's what they deserve. This is what we all deserve. It doesn't feel, I, don't, I don't feel like I deserve to go to hell. I don't feel like my children deserve to go there. I, I, I feel like I deserve God's favor and his pleasure and his kindness. What the Bible teaches is that my feelings about that are wrong and that I, de that I absolutely deserve the Lord's judgment and condemnation. And that for whatever reason, he's shielded me from feeling the full weight of my sin. But that doesn't mean it's not there. Full weight is there. So people that have died, I think your question was, what about people that have died, hadn't had a chance or something like that to believe in Jesus? They didn't hear about him, something like this. Um, just simply speaking, they're judged based upon their good works then. And their good works are not good enough. So that's... That should be an impetus for us to conduct missions and to, and to uh, tell people about Jesus. Uh, but this is ultimately the Lord's doing. So, that, so there is, in other words, we don't want to begin to look, look at people that are in hell and wonder, well, they might have been okay. They might have been good enough. This judgment is strictly based upon Jesus. Has a person taken refuge in the Lord's forgiveness and his blood? And if they haven't, then they are not safe. Question? So, oh. so during the process, okay, at death, and as a Christian, the, the hopeful the protocol is that we want to bury the body, but I have what I have conflicts with is okay. The body is cremated. Is the process still the same? The soul is still separated from the body, and just the body's decom decomposition has just been sped up because now the body is in ashes. Is it not in the earth then at that point? Is there any ramifications that the soul is not separated from the body because of an artificial? Yeah, so the question is, um, isn't, cremation is fine, isn't it? Because the body's going to turn into ashes eventually anyway. Okay. Um, so I think there's two questions about cremation that I maybe want to address. I'll try to do this quickly. But there's two questions probably that should be considered. One is, does it, we haven't even got to the resurrection, but the resurrection will happen on this day, the resurrection of the body, according to the scriptures. Will any sort of way that we treat a, a body make it harder for the Lord to raise the body on the last day? Answer is no on that. So whether we cremate or bury bodily, 
this is not going to matter. We, we, we're aware that, that people can be lost at sea, there can be awful things, that, and their bodies are just not recoverable. This, isn't, this is not hard for the Lord God who created our bodies in the first place to raise on the last day. I don't think there's a big debate on that. Where the debate sits is, is it the most dignified way to treat a Christian body, to, to bury it or to, or to um, cremate it or treat it however you would spread it around or something like this. And throughout the history of the Lord's church, including, I think, even in the scriptures, the case has been made without legislating it. The case has been made that the most dignified way to confess our faith in the future resurrection is, is full bodily burial. In fact, there have been times throughout the history of the church that, uh, that pagans would mock Christians uh, with the resurrection because the resurrection of the body on the last day is among the most offensive of the teachings of the Christian church to a pagan world. And so in a way to mock Christians, they have, uh, they've deliberately cremated Christian bodies and spread them on the water or something and then said, we'll see if your God can raise the body from that. And it was just mockery is all it was. Well, in response to that, Christians historically had said, look, while it's true, of course God's going to raise the body, uh, we cannot deliberately burn and spread bodies around um, as a confession of our faith. So that's basically the question, and, I, and I, I'll hand that over to you all for your best judgment. The church has traditionally given you all the counsel that the best way to confess the resurrection on the last day is, is bodily burial. Without legislating it or giving you some cause to think that if there's been a cremation that he's not going to raise it. Right? So you're free, and, uh, but this I think is a question that requires wisdom still. Hopefully I did okay with that answer. I'll, I'll let you follow up if you want to. Okay. Question over here. One second. Yeah, you're on. Okay. The other, the other part to the cremation versus burial is because we do look at our bodies differently than a pagan world does. Um, because Christ took on our body um, and became human flesh, there's a sacredness to it. And so we treat the body differently. Um, if, it's, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's certainly good enough for us. And so it takes on a, a certain sacredness. So we treat it with a different kind of dignity than the pagan world. Yeah, I can, okay. so when, when a Christian body dies, there's... There, when, when our loved ones die, there's not a bunch that we can do any longer to love them. This is one of the devastating parts about losing somebody to death, is that you were used to loving and serving them in their bodies. When they're gone now, there's nothing you can do for them. There is one thing. You can, in a dignified way, take care of their bodies. So I'll sit down at a mortuary, for instance, and we're planning somebody's funeral, and I will say, well, this is the last way that we can love so-and-so, so that we can take care of their bodies. They're not able to do that anymore, but we can, and that's what we're doing here today. So let's talk about the best way to dignify this body that the Lord gave and redeemed by his blood. Okay. Uh, right behind you, you could pass that mic back. Okay. So back to the time. Hi. Uh, thank you. Uh, always takes a second for this mic to come on. Uh, 
Can you reconcile the concept for me that we just sang about in the hymn of the, of the person, quote, sleeping until the resurrection? Yeah. You know, compared to being in paradise, you know, aside Jesus, uh, that very day. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Here's, what I'm, here's the case that I'll make, that, and we'll look at some passages, but the case I would make is that when it was refers to Christian sleeping, um, which is a number, you get a number of passages that way, we say it in the hymn, but that's coming from the Bible. Um, if, if especially Paul in the epistles, but Jesus speaks it this way too, she's not dead, she's merely sleeping. Um, that that is referring not to the soul here. You could say that the soul is resting, but not sleeping. The sleeping is a reference to the body. So we would say a Christian is sleeping. Not a reference to non-Christians, but a, a reference to Christians. That means the appearance of the body is, or we're to think of the body as merely what? Sleeping, because death is permanent while sleep is temporary. When we put a body into the ground, we recognize that is that to be temporary. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna put your questions off for just a moment, and, but keep them. Let me finish the timeline, and then we'll, but we'll take questions after that again. Would that be okay? Okay, so I, I've already told you, we have a, a, a giant line. I don't know when that line is going to happen. We're not told in the scriptures. We don't date set or something, but it goes by a number of different names in the Bible. Uh, we could call it the second coming. It's the return of the Lord Jesus. You could call it judgment day. Something, the Greek word for this is parousia. But that changes everything. So we're told a number of things occur on that day, and the first of them, we could say second coming here, or judgment day, can I pause a second? If you, um, uh, I'd say half of my members will get cremated because I don't openly discourage it or anything. I think I encourage bodily burial without discouraging cremation. But one thing I still uh, won't do, and I, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, or it, I know lots of things have happened and you've done things and there's been decisions that are made and sometimes in the past, but at least from my practice, if a cremation happens, um, I, I highly discourage spreading the ashes and that's that's because I, I would just encourage even in the form of the ashes for those to be buried at least someplace um, because of the, the imagery that comes up so repeatedly in the scriptures about the body being like a seed in 1 Corinthians 15 we're told that the, the body is sown in weakness and raised in strength it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown Corruptible, raised incorruptible. It's sown. Well, that word sown comes from the Lord Jesus himself, which he says the body's like a seed. We put a seed into the ground, not in order to get rid of it. We put a seed into the ground, and then what do we do? We wait. We're waiting for that thing to cut, because we recognize it looks as though it's dead. And in some ways, you could say a seed is, is dead, but we don't expect it to stay dead. It's going to rise. There's an expectation. Well, that whole imagery, anytime I've had somebody say, yeah, we're thinking of it because he liked to hunt up in the mountains and we're going to go spread his ashes out. We're in his favorite hunting spot or something. But anytime I've said, yes, but in the Bible, the Lord says it's like a seed. 
and we should expect it to arise again. And you don't spread, well, I guess you can spread seeds, but we, we, when, you, when you bury a body, it's as though a seed, and we're expecting it to come up, and then they've all looked at me and said, oh yeah, well then we'll just bury it, no big deal. We'll do that, that makes sense. So I'm encouraging bodily burial, and highly discouraging spreading or jewelry and that kind of thing. Have I sufficiently offended enough of you yet? <laughs> I probably won't be the last time. Okay, so Judgment Day, the first thing that we're told is to happen is that the souls of Christians are reunited to their former bodies. That is called the resurrection of the dead. We confessed it this morning in the creed already. The resurrection of the dead is not a confession of Jesus' resurrection. We confess that elsewhere. When we say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, we're saying we believe this event will occur on Judgment Day at the second coming. The bodies of Christians will be reunited with their souls. And, they'll be, and that, that's called resurrection. That's what that means. So also, the souls of unbelievers will also be raised and joined to their former bodies. Then Judgment Day occurs. On Judgment Day, according to uh, a number of different passages, I don't think I have them uh, cited for you, and I don't intend to cite them, but I can, I can give them to you. But that, the, uh, on, the, uh, on the last day, that judgment is by works, those who have done good to eternal life, those who have done evil to eternal death. Uh, when, when Jesus, in Matthew, say, 25, when Jesus uh, uh, stands before them in the, in the, uh, on his great throne, he separates them out, and he says, well done to one side, the sheep, and and then he condemns the, the evil works of the goats on the other side. He points to their works or their lack of good works. This is a judgment which is based upon good works. So their bodies are reunited. They're judged. Here's my, I'll give you my quickest explanation of that, that I can. Christians do good works. And then the Lord Jesus notices it, and that's important to him. You all are Christians, you, you, uh, you perform good works in your vocations. This is because of your faith in Jesus. He, when he gave you faith, he had set you on a course of performing good works inside of your vocations, which would serve and love your neighbor. You can't do good works apart from faith, but when you do have faith, you will perform the good works, and the Lord notices them. And he will say to you, in response to your good works, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have done this, you've done this, I've noticed, I've been tracking your good works. Under, as I understand it, on the last day, the, the sheep also said, when did we do all these good works? We didn't think that they were anything terribly great. We weren't keeping track of them. What we were looking at is you and your mercy for us, since we are buried in our own sins and constantly need forgiveness. But what, what's of these good works? And he points then to their faith. Well, as much as you've done it for me, you've done it to these. Or as much as you've done it to these, you've done it for me. So it's a result of their Christian, Christian faith. Why don't their sins get counted on that day? They won't. There's no evidence on the last day that Christians will have an accounting of their sins. Why not? Because their sins have been paid for. When Jesus died on the cross, that's in fact what he, he, was, he was not wasting his time. He was in fact removing our sins from us and casting them aside so they do not at all stick to us. There's apparently for Christians, this is loaded, that's my point. It's a loaded deck. Christians are judged according to their good works. Their sins are not looked at. <laughs> On the other hand, non-Christians are also judged 
and they're judged according to their good works, but their good works don't, don't count before God in heaven because you can't do good works truly, meaningfully, for heaven, good works apart from faith in Christ. You can serve your neighbor in certain ways, but they don't count before God's face for heaven. But their sins still do. If their sins are not covered by Christ, then they're judged according to their sins. So you, can you see how this is a judgment which is based on works, and yet it's ultimately still based upon Christ? Right, so that's the judgment day. And that's what that judgment will look like. I don't know how long that's going to take. The Bible says that the resurrection of our bodies is like a flash, a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. It's, it, it's uh, virtually immediate. But it doesn't say that judgment will be immediate. I, I don't know if it, uh, I, knew, I know that in Acts 17 it says it'll take a day. He's appointed a day when he'll judge the world. I don't know if it'll take a whole day or how long that judgment will happen. Some amount of time on a particular day. I don't think it'll be multiple days. After that, after that judgment, now this separation, now this is the part that's, I think, challenging. We're told that the Lord will destroy the whole world, both the, 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 hev the heavens and the earth, not by water like he did in Noah's flood, but that he'll destroy the earth and even the heavens by fire, completely incinerate them. The word is destroyed, apolumi in the Greek. But that, as I'll show you, hopefully, and this would be, I think, our session three if we're on schedule, but that he will restore the planet, this very planet, the one we're on right now, that's what I'll argue, he'll restore this planet and this universe to perfection, remove sin and all of sin's effects away from it, and he will set us and himself to live in that new world that on this new earth not a different earth, not a remade, reconfigured, rethought out earth, but on this one that you can look at forever and ever and ever. So that our existence, I used to put this arrow up here in heaven. We'll go to heaven, it'll be a new earth, but I don't put the arrow there anymore. I put it right here. It's called a new heavens and a new earth where we will live in our body and soul perfected and restored forever and ever. Now at the same time, non-Christians also in their body and their soul um, reside in, I don't know, a bunch of information about this because the Bible doesn't really give it to us but that they will live forever in hell in their bodies and souls also. Okay, here's the main things that I want you to... Here's the main reasons I think that this chart or this timeline is, is helpful. What, what I think you want, I want you to keep in mind as we deliberate on this. The first is this. When the Bible speaks of heaven, most of the time, I'll suggest to you, most of the time, it's not talking about the intermediate state. In fact, the Bible says very little about this existence. It is not as interested in this as it is in this. Most of the time, the Bible's speaking about this. 
This is a challenge because in my experience, I think most Christians are dwelling more, and the Bible isn't this way, but that most Christians are dwelling more on the intermediate state. Where am I going to go when I die? What's it going to be like there at a funeral? We, we dwell upon how the person who's died, so long as they died in Christ, is free from this and doesn't have to deal with that anymore, and it's, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the Bible, if it points us to something, rarely points to where we go when we die. But rather, what's going to happen when the Lord returns and our bodies are raised and we live in a new heavens and a new earth and it points us to that? That's a challenge. Right? So that's my first point, is just, to, just to, to note that. When we're thinking about heaven, we're mostly going to be over here. The second thing, when you're reading the scriptures and it begins to talk about heaven, it's going to be important. It might, it might be challenging, but it's going to be important to note from context. Are we talking about this one or this one? It's not necessarily the same. I teach a membership class um, from an old, this is an old green book called That I May Know Him. So I don't know if any of you have seen this. It goes all the way back to early 70s or something. I still use it because I'm lazy and I don't want to update it or anything like that. There's a unit there. The last unit is a unit on heaven, and it qu quotes a number of Bible passages, six or eight different Bible passages about heaven. But it's a complete mess because that, that green book fails to make a distinction between this heaven and this one. And so it's quoting Luke 16 in, in proof of what our life is going to be like forever and ever, which is really talking about the intermediate state. And then it's talking. So in, in my class, I spend as much time just distinguishing between which of the two is talking about. That's an important th thing for us to do. The third thing, and I think this is the most important, is just to note this. The overriding description. Well, let me start to say this way. The most important description of heaven in either the intermediate state or the new heavens and the new earth, the most important description is that we're with the Lord. By far and away, that's the, that's the most important description, with Jesus. After that, the chief benefit of the intermediate state is a cessation of evil things. What, what's the Bible say? We'll have no more what? No more tears. No more pain. No more sin. Uh, no more temptation. The things that are bad in this life will be taken away from us. And we'll be with the Lord. The one positive description, we'll be with the Lord. All everything else is descriptions by way of negative. It won't have all these hard things. The overriding description of the new heavens and the new earth is the cessation of evil things, but the addition of good things. Descriptions of what life is going to be like, what positive descriptions. We'll have earth, we'll have heaven. The Lord, of course, will be there. Uh, but we'll have bodies, cities, countries, Etc. It's a food, eating, drinking, joy, and the like. So, in my experience, those who are those who are most captivated by imagining what life is going to be like in the intermediate state 
are those who in this life are going through what? Pain or suffering. Typically those who have something wrong with their body or they're old. <laughs> so this appeals most typically, I mean no offense to the elderly and they're waiting. But you'll oftentimes hear young people who have maybe they have children or they have dreams out in front of them or maybe they're young-ish grandparents. They've got grandkids that are starting to do things. And then I say to them, won't it be great to leave this terrible world and go to heaven? And they say, what? I don't really want to go anywhere. I mean, I want to go to heaven someday when life is hard. <laughs> but I wouldn't just mind having my, being able to see my grandkids. Or I, I really did have this project at work that was, was what captivated me, and I wanted to finish it up. Or I have this thing I wanted to accomplish. I was building that. I, was, I, I still haven't gone and explored this place that we've been wanting to go to. And I hate to go to heaven now because I'll have missed out on that. And so that you, you will find, you will hear Christians say, I don't want to go to heaven right now. And what that's because what they're being taught is that this is what they have to look forward to in heaven. And that's understandable enough. I think I sympathize with that. I believe they're wrong. I think heaven is, will be better by far, that's what Paul said, than anything in this life now, even the intermediate state. But I sympathize with the position that I don't want to go anywhere right now. However, that is, that's, I think, wrong thinking. Christians really should be considering what this life will be like. And if that's the case, the Lord will take away nothing that you presently enjoy and only add things. Um, so this will captivate anybody's imagination, and I think this can draw and should draw young, old, in whatever condition you might find yourself. This is fascinating. This is my favorite reason for, for, for considering this subject, is thinking about this and what it'll be like. Okay, so that's your timeline. Now I'll take uh, questions on that. Let me look at my... You, you got the mic. Are you going to ask a question or are you going to? You got it. Okay. The question. So uh, you described the intermediate state and the post-judgment state from heaven perspective. Is there a difference in perspective on the other end of the spectrum in a pre-judgment and post-judgment state? Is there a difference in uh, Hades? For, and, and really the question comes back to those souls that are judged that don't make it to the final heaven state, mm -hmm. what, what, is, what is that and is that a different state than compared to uh, prejudgment? That I'm aware of, the only difference is the presence of the body or not the presence of the body. Um, this is just according to their soul and this is now both body and soul. In the, uh, in, the he in the Greek, they're given, I think, and I've been looking at this a little bit more closely recently, but I think they're generally given two different names, those places. Hades is the place where souls are presently. And 
Hades was not meant for humans. It was meant for the evil angels, according to, I think, Second Peter. Um, get the name given for the final after-judgment day hell is most typically Gehenna. You heard that word before? The two different Greek words, and that makes a distinction between the two. The condition, though, I, I just don't know much about hell. Can't give you much. The Bible gives us a little bit, but it's, it's challenging. The Bible's far more interested in giving us details about hell to warn us and to steal us against it than it is, against, uh, than it is giving us details about heaven to whet our appetite for it. Please. Maybe just <clears throat> real quick, um, one aspect of hell will be um, in contradistinction to heaven, as you mentioned, then in both the temporary and permanent heaven that we will be with the Lord. I think maybe what's common to both is, is that we will be, they <laughs> will be apart from the Lord. Yeah, yeah. So there, that's, that's, what hell, that's what's common there, is that they're away from him away from him and rejected by him. Yeah. Okay, other questions? Please. Yes, um, in the Bible it talks about every knee shall bow. Uh -huh. When is that going to occur? I think that that's a reference to Judgment Day. But clearly not a reference to today, is it? Oh, sorry. Uh, I didn't hear me. Did you hear me? The, the question is, it's a big space. The question is, the Bible speaks of every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. I think it's a reference to Judgment Day. Um, so it's on this day, even the unbelievers raised will have to acknowledge their Lord on that day. They hadn't prior, but they will have to acknowledge Him. But not in saving faith, um, and a begrudging knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's so horrifying. I was thinking about this recently. I, Romans 1 says they know it already. But they're just suppressing. It's that Romans 1 says they suppress this. Which means that on the last day, the Lord will come. And I, I picture it unbelievers saying, oh, dang it, I knew it. <laughs> well, if you knew it, what were you? They, because Paul teaches that they were suppressing this. But they know better. There's a reason they're suppressing it. But they'll still have to bow the knee and their tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Oh, that's horrifying. You have two or three more of those mics? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious because paradise, now I, we, we hear about um, purgatory and that looks like paradise to yeah. me. You know, that's you know, what people call purgatory fits in that same uh, uh, timeline. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I, I meant to say to you and didn't. This intermediate state is, is not two things. Number one, it is not limbo. This is not a, not, I'm not quite sure. The Roman Catholic Church invented the doctrine of limbo, I think, in certain circumstances because people go to a place where they're not quite sure if they're going to make it or not. Am I going up or down? 
it's not, that's not what's being talked about. Limbo, by the way, is artificial. It's a, it's a, it's a made up. It's not in the Bible. It's appointed for a person who wants to die and then the judgment. So also, this is not purgatory. Purgatory is also uh, invented because uh, by the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church stopped believing in, the, in justification by grace alone and they, and they, that I'm accounted righteous. And so they invented a place where a Christian would go, a Christian would go after they die in order to do enough good works and to purge away sins that they committed and get themselves into a position where they were righteous enough to get, be able to go to heaven. It's like a stop-off point where they're getting washed, kind of. And then they're clean and they can go up into heaven. But that's because the Roman Catholic Church had forgotten the doctrine of justification, that when a person is baptized through faith in Christ, they're clean right now and don't have to perform good works in order to get good enough to be in heaven. So they, ha they invented the, that stage. That is not what's going on here. This is, so this is not purgatory, and this is not limbo. It's the intermediate state, and for Christians, it's paradise. Purgatory, just to, for the record, I don't know why I care about this, but purgatory is not paradise. Purgatory is awful, according to their definition. It's as bad as hell these days. I mean, it gets in the Middle Age, and purgatory is so bad, you'd almost rather go to hell than go to purgatory, the way they were describing it. Okay, other questions. Thank you for reminding me of that. I, your microphone is sought after. <laughs> um, I have a question about um, the Jewish faith. Um, I actually have a family member who had just recently passed who was uh, raised Jewish um, uh, and was... Uh, and, um, but the last half of his life uh, was a believer in Jesus, but never took the sacraments, mm. was not baptized. Um, oh, well. So I, just out of curiosity, what would that entail? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a heavy one, but... <laughs> no, it's fine. I, I need to know why they, they elected not to be baptized. I'm the, I'll tell you what my assumption is. Yeah, I I'm, don't, I'm not sure. My, my assumption is they came to believe in Jesus. Yes. And we are saved sure. through faith alone. Through faith alone. But when we believe in Jesus, it's Jesus who says to be baptized. We need baptism. So people who believe in Jesus get baptized. Now, I, it could be, there's so much misinformation out there that, that this is a person who is just mistaken. And they were given bad information. And they decided not to be baptized, and it was foolish. Yet, they still believe in Jesus. I, I don't know, I, mean, I don't know, but that's all I can think happened there. There's another way I could conceive of that, that a person decided not to be baptized because they didn't really believe in Jesus. They just didn't take him serious. They had their own ideas, they rejected what he said. If that's the case, that's obviously bad. So, I bet just charitably, I would say he believed in Jesus and was given terrible information. I mean, is it possible that a believing Christian can, can be under awful false opinions, maybe even their entire life, on bad information, and yet still be saved in the end? Yeah, that's, that can happen.
called, by the way, it's called false doctrine. Um, please. Uh, yeah, I wanted to sort of introduce the thought that we're, we're as Christians, we call ourselves God-fearing. And for myself, I always felt like, you know, when, when, with regard to what to expect after I die, one of the things, of course, I naturally fear is judgment day. It's sort of the ultimate trip to the principal's office, right? Yeah, yeah. When, 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 when I was a kid, I could get sent to the principal's office and talk my way out of it sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, I, I realized this is the day you like when I tried to put one over on my dad, he knew me. Um, and you can't put one over on God. It's, it's where you really are called to account for your life. And I know you said that our sins were already forgiven by Christ, but our, our failure to do good works or live the right kind of life is still a form of, it's answering for a certain kind of sinfulness. Isn't it? Um, so back up a little bit, say that again. Well, like, it, 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 you can say our individual sins are forgiven before Judgment Day, mm -hmm. but when, when we're called to account for our lack of good works or living a Christian kind of life, we are still answering for maybe not individual sins, but a kind of sinful mess. Does that make sense? Uh, the failure to be the kind of person oh. you were supposed to be. Sure, yeah. Well, that, this is, um, when the goats on in Matthew 25, when the goats are judged, that's what they're judged for. There's no negative thing that that's pointed out. Certainly, they did negative things. But what was, what's pointed out is what we took off. sometimes in, in theology, we call it sins of omission. They, they, there was a bunch of things they should have been doing. They did not do it. You, should, you didn't come visit me. You didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. Um, but I don't know if I've answered your question. No, I'm truthful. I don't even know if I'm sure what my question okay. was. Other than, <laughs> other than you're still answering for a form of sinfulness. Maybe not individual sins, which were forgiven by Christ, but that on Judgment Day... Yeah, I think so. Okay. We fear God, right? We, we, we know God loves us. We love God, but we also fear God, like we fear yeah. angering a beloved parent. You don't want to disappoint God. You don't want, and, and you, you still fear that judgment. I think your question is a really, really good question. Um, are, should we fear Judgment Day? You, you know, I, I, you might, this might surprise you. Uh, I think the answer to that question is yes. I think we should. I, I was just reading uh, Johann Gerhardt. We're getting Gerhardt in English now. Thanks be to God. Um, I, I don't know what your opinions otherwise of CPH, our publishing house, are, but thanks be to God that they're doing the work, and it's a lot of work to translate Gerhardt into English. And I was, I was reading it recently. Gerhardt has, an or has a conclusion to all these different parts of this, of teaching, of Christian doctrine. When it came to the resurrection of the body, uh, he, he gave me one page of the salutary benefits for this life of the resurrection of the body. One page at the end. It was like 100 pages of content, one page of, here's how this is useful in the Christian life, and here's how it would encourage you and exhort you, and so forth. And, the, and, and his section on the judgment day, he gave like, I can't remember exactly, but like 40 or 60 pages of how judgment day is salutary and benefit to us right now. And I didn't read it. <laughs> I can just tell you what the pages are. But I suspect that part of the reason Judgment Day is so salutary is because it's fearful. And we, we should fear it. Now let me, get, uh, let me expand on that if I can. We should fear God. 
We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We, that fear shouldn't evaporate when we become Christians. But the best explanation I know of this is, so bear with me, I think this is a, maybe a Piper example. I, just, I have all these things rattling around in my head. I don't know where I get them all. But it's a, a father and a son who visit somebody's house one time. And not, they knock on the door, and that son is, let's just say, four years old. When the person opens the door, the first thing that happens is a giant dog comes out. And the owner says, no, 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 don't worry. He's as kind as can be. You don't have to worry about it. The dog's looking at a four-year-old right face to face. After a little while, they realized that four-year-old forgot something in the car. And so dad said, why don't you run on back? Go get it. Four-year-old ran back to the car, runs, and then the dog kind of boom, got a low growl. It starts loping behind the kid as he was running. And the owner said, oh, uh, uh, Junior, uh, just a second. You might not want to run away from him. He doesn't like it when people run away from him. You can walk beside him, put your arm around him. You could probably even ride him. <laughs> He's as safe as can be when you're alongside him. And he'll protect you from everything on the street. But he doesn't like it when people run away from him. I think that's a great example of God. Should we be afraid of him? Terrified. If we're running away from him. Should we be afraid of judgment day? Terrified. It's utterly terrifying. If we have run away from the Lord. But in the, here, this is the beautiful thing, is that when we have the Lord, that pushes out all other fears. If I have the Lord and his fear, I don't have to be afraid of anything, of anything else. Fear of death, fear of my guilt, fear of sins, fear of enemies. I fear simply the Lord. So now all the other fears have left the building, and the only person I have remaining to be afraid of is the, is the Lord. Here he's with me. I turn to him and say, well, I don't fear anything else. I, I only fear you. I'm only terrified of you. I'm only shaking. I only bow down before you. And then he says to us, come here. <laughs> you don't have anything to be afraid of. I love you. I've taken care of everything. Don't be afraid. Fear not. How many times do we hear that in the scriptures? So we should be afraid of leaving him or being judged apart from him and his safety, but not with him. Can you see the difference? I think this is very challenging, though. So should you all be afraid of him? <laughs> yes and no at the same time. Have I been sufficiently ambiguous with you? I think, I think you'll find both of those positions in the Bible. Um, how are we doing on time? I'll take a question. Let me take another question, and then I want to move a little bit into the intermediate state in paradise. We'll do some of that before, the, before we close. Okay. Um, could you go back to that arrow that's dropping down um, on Judgment Day? This one? Yeah, and okay. just explain that again. Because... It's like we've made it to that point 
because of Jesus, mm -hmm. but then we're judged on our good works, and we can go down. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I have to give direction on the map because I don't have a better way to do it. So I don't want you to think going down means going down is a bad thing here. All I'm trying to depict on this little map thing is the rejoining of the body that had been buried with the soul that's been all this time in paradise. Um, I don't think literally there'll be any direction that happens. I think we'll be talking about coming down. So we can't go to hell at that point based on our not lack of good works. Right. That's what's so important about this, that we, that we have Hebrews 9.27 says that we're judged when we die and that when we go into heaven, this is eternal life. We're in heaven now eternally. So we won't have to fear what judgment day will bring. We are resting, unafraid. Um, but that judgment day is beautiful because it's the Lord's pointing out to us. We get to, we'll see his face and he will say to us, and now this, not just us, but this will be in front of everybody, that he will say to us, you've done well. I'm pleased with you. And this will become public. Um, and that's only because of him. It's only because of him. And yet, and yet the Lord indicates, I, I, I think, I, I want to press this into my own conscience. The Lord indicates that he is pleased with me for the sake of Christ, and that because of Christ and his work, God who wills and works in me is also now pleased with the little good works I scrape together. So if I, if I'm, I'm, I'm fixing a, I had a kid throw a toy in the toilet and flush it, and it gets stuck, it doesn't go down. And I had to take the toilet off and tip it up and turn it off and put my, uh, and I thought in that moment, I bet you that the, this is my vocation. I'm not father. I'm running a house. Nobody's going to say thank you to me for this. But the Lord will commend me for such things. All praise be to Christ. Not me. All praise be to Christ. He will, he will commend me for my, these simple good works. You should, you should teach yourself to look forward to that day. He doesn't, he, when he looks at you all Christians, he does not just look at some foul sinner who's cleansed merely in the blood of Jesus. He's cleansed you in the blood of Jesus unto good works, which he is so pleased with. Now, um, anyway, I don't, so, so, but you, at the same time, we all recognize it's, like I said, it's a stacked deck, and this is because of Christ, and we'll give all glory to him and receive none for ourselves. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to um, pause on the questions. I'm going to take, uh, let's see, I'm going to take 10 more minutes or so and proceed on my outline, which I've lost. Nope, I got it. In session number one, which is almost done, I'd like to hone in on this. We'll say as much as we can about this intermediate state and the soul in heaven. In session number two, 
I want to talk as much as I can about hell and in particular the value of what Christ has done for us on the cross and enduring hell. And in sessions number three and four, in session three, we'll probably talk about the resurrection of the body and its nature, the, re the new heavens and the new earth and its nature, and point out the scripture passages. And in session number four, I'll take questions, or I'll address these questions about what heaven is going to be like to the best of my ability, and then take questions you might have. So I'm still in session one. I've got a little bit of time. I want to talk some. I won't get to the end of this. We'll just pick this up at the other side of the break. I'm going to talk some about as much as we can say about this intermediate state of Christians in heaven. I'll point you there to letter A. I'm on page number one, about midway through. First of all, can we call it heaven? There's a number of well-meaning, even seminary professors right now who are discouraging us from calling that condition heaven so that we don't get it confused with this. I say, this is, this is different. We shouldn't call it heaven. I, I take exception. I understand their point. But I just take exception to that. There are some passages which call it heaven, and so I call it heaven. Um, notice 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. On 2 Timothy, uh, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy on his deathbed in, his, in essence. He says, I finished my race. Uh, now it's stored up for me the crown, which is prepared and so forth. So he's, he's saying pretty soon I'm going to die and he'll bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, which is this. Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad for, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I, I, I put in bold there the word is, not will be, but is. So there is a heaven right now, and he has stored up a reward and an inheritance for all of us, and it's there right now, it's waiting. It's not a future thing. We receive it in the future, but it's presently ours, and it's in heaven. So I think we, we can call it heaven there. And then... Uh, Luke 15, 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is a reference to uh, a God especially, but I think the angels and even the saints in heaven who rejoice there in heaven where they're at now when people here repent. So if somebody here is baptized, I think there's rejoicing that goes on in the present heaven. It's just called that way. So I'd make the argument that you can call that place heaven. I oftentimes speak this way. I'll call somebody up and I'll say, hey, so I, know it's, um, I know today it's been a year since your husband went to heaven. And they know just what I mean. And, um, so I, and that's where they're at. They're in heaven. But I think just to be clear that it's not the same thing we're talking on the judgment day. The chief description, letter B, of our existence there is that we'll be with the Lord. Some passages, and this is just a selection. I did, um, I, I, I quote, this is a, a hymn that we sang this morning, actually. I didn't request the hymn, uh, but we, we got to sing it. This is the first verse, is it? First or second? Now you got me confused. Earth has no pleasure I would share, yea, heaven itself were void and bare. If thou, Lord, now look, if yea, heaven itself were void and bare, heaven is empty to me. If thou, Lord, wert not near me, I uh, am so myself captivated by the details of what heaven will be like and the continuity 
from this life to the next life, that I, I don't think I hone in enough on the Bible's main description and benefit of heaven. And that is that we'll be with the Lord more perceptively even than we are here. We'll be before his face. This is the great benefit of heaven. I, uh, the example is that one, uh, that little girl whose mother got sick and died when she was just a little girl. And her dad, while mom was sick and in the hospital, her dad took her off someplace um, so that she wouldn't have to watch her mom die in the hospital. And then after her mom died, dad went and got the little girl, let's say she's eight or something, nine, went and got her and brought her back home. But before she brought her back home, she set up all the room, rooms just the way that they were and stocked them all with enjoyable things, toys, and the, her favorite foods are in the kitchen, and she make, puts her blanket and everything in, in place, and then he brings her home and says, well, honey, we're, we're home. Uh, and she runs room to room full of blessings and her favorite things, looking for her mom. She comes back and says, but where's mom? And he says, well, honey, I, she's gone from us. But look, you have your, your room and your bed. And she says, I don't want to live in this home if mom is not here. Right? See, this will be the same thing. That, that's what this hymn is singing. Yet heaven itself is void, barren. If, oh, Lord, if thou wert not near me. But the description of heaven constantly is that the Lord will be there. And that makes all the rooms enjoyable. All the food tastes good because the Lord is there. We have him there present. That's the most important benefit. Let me uh, turn the page to number two. The dust returns to the earth as it was. The spirit returns to God. That's Ecclesiastes 12. That's our chief uh, Bible passage, actually, our proof passage for the separation of the spirit or the soul and the body at judgment. The body returns to the ground. The spirit returns to God from Ecclesiastes 12, Old Testament. Uh, Luke 23, 43. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's Jesus on the cross. Jesus will die on Friday. The thief will die on Friday. Jesus' human soul will go to be in the Father's hand. That's another description of paradise, the Father's hand. Father into your hand, I commit my spirit. And the thief, now a Christian, will all, in his soul or his spirit will also be with Jesus there and they'll be in the same place. You'll be with me. We'll be with Christ. And then finally, Philippians 1, 21, for me to live in, is Christ and to die is gain. That's, pre this, uh, that's pre this present. So to, right now, to live is Christ. We have Christ right now. To die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I, I shall choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. When he says my de desire is to depart, depart what? Depart the, the body in this world. To depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh 
is more necessary on your account for the sake of the work that he can do. What I'm interested in here, just asking, I think I put the question. Yeah, I already have Christ now. Why is death gain? He says, for me to live is Christ. If I stay here, what do I have? What's the chief animating benefit and value of my life right now? It is Christ. I have Christ. All other things are lost compared to the value of knowing Christ, he says. I have Christ now. But then he says, I'd rather die and be with the Lord. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Because that is better. Well, what? So, what, what, which is it? I'm here right now when I have Christ, and I'm told that if I die, that's gain. How is it gain? I have Christ now, I have Christ then. It feels to me like it's loss, because I've lost what? My body, I've lost my family, my goods, my home, my car, my children. And what have I gained? I've gained Christ, but I already had him. <laughs> I feel like Paul should have said, for me, to live is Christ and to die is loss. But he doesn't say it that way. He says to, to die is gain. And from that, I conclude, it's the only way I have to go, I conclude that when one dies, they have more of Christ, whatever that means. They have more of him. They can see him more perceptively. They're there with him. Uh, and for the sake of that, just that, the gain of more Christ, that makes all the loss, a comp according to him, that makes it worth it. So that's terrifically valuable to be with Christ. And then finally, this, this passage from 2 Corinthians 5, we're of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Um, when we're with the Lord, we're at home. I, I put Greek words. I, I, um, the Greek word, therefore, we'd rather be away from the body, away from there is ekdemosai. And at home with the Lord is endemosai. Those words, just so that you can, maybe you can write these in or something. The word uh, to be away from the body, ekdemosai, that word ek means away from, demosai means home. Um, domestic, that's where we get our domestic, demosai. <clears throat> so to be away from the body is to be away from home. Now I don't know why the English translations don't pick up on this, it just says I'd rather be away from the body. When Paul says I'd, I'd rather be unhomed from my body. My body is home, he says. This is my home here. With my, with my souls and my body, it's at home. But so also, my home is with the, with the Lord. So what home would I, if you forced me to choose, what home does Paul say I'd rather choose? Would I rather be away from this home in my body, at Demosai, or whether it be in Demosai, in the Lord, at home with the Lord, I choose to be at home with the Lord. That's better than being at my home in the body right now. Now, if you really pushed Paul and asked him what would be best, he would say, I, I wish to be at home in my body with the Lord. They're both my home. But since I have to choose, if I had to choose, if you forced me to choose, I'd rather be with the Lord. That's the most important description of 
heaven. I'm going to pause and ask the question next time when we come back from the break, where is heaven? Where is this existence right now? And then at letter D, Revelation 6, I think is a treat, um, and that'll be the, I, what I think to be the most descriptive of all the passages about the intermediate state for those in paradise, and we'll do as much as we can to try to pick out some things there about what we can say about our loved ones in heaven right now and what awaits us there when we die. So schedule again is to, am I on time? Yeah, on time enough.